Well, good morning, everybody, uh, those of you who are with us uh, here in person and those of you uh, who are joining us uh, online. Um, it's good to be with you. It's really good to be uh, with you. If you are here last week, I, um, I opened the service and uh, I had one job in terms of announcements, one job, and I failed. Um, uh, the most important announcement that needed to be made last week, and I didn't make it. Um, so I'm going to, it's time for, uh, to, to do, uh, to, it's not never too late. So uh, there was a, a new uh, arrival to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I know many of you know, but I want, we want to make sure everyone of, of you are, are aware that uh, Mike and Alyssa and uh, Silas and Alden uh, celebrated uh, the arrival, the safe arrival of, uh, of Ada Ruth. And so that is uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful news. We really celebrate with them as a family, grateful for the safe arrival, that uh, mom's doing well, um, and uh, they're here worshiping with us this morning. So we want to make sure everybody's aware of that, and uh, Lord willing, in a, in a couple weeks' time, we'll be able to, to have another baptism to celebrate as we uh, baptize uh, Ada Ruth. Um, it's also uh, this morning a, a great privilege to uh, be able to open God's Word with you. Um, as we do each week as a congregation, we, we really believe uh, the priority of, of, of looking to God's Word, believing that it speaks into our lives. Although it may have been written in original context uh, many years ago, very far removed from uh, our context, uh, but that it, it, it continues because God is the author of it, uh, that it continues to speak into our lives in very, a very practical and relevant way. And this morning, we're turning once more to the book of, of Jonah, and specifically to Jonah chapter 3, because we're in uh, week 3 of a four-week series on the book. And the book this far, so far has been and is, um, in large part, a story of failure. At least when it comes to God's people, it's a story of God's people uh, not doing very well. Uh, chapter 1, uh, Jonah is sent on mission to Nineveh, and he does the exact opposite. He goes in the ex opposite direction to God's plan, and as a result of his disobedience, it causes a fierce storm to arise, and he eventually gets thrown into the sea. And right out of the gate, we're aware that this is a, this is a story about an individual who keeps getting it wrong. Chapter 2, the prophet who's now floundering and sinking in the sea well, he gets swallowed up by a giant fish, and he cries out to God in prayer from inside the fish and then gets vomited out onto dry land. In chapter 3, which we're going to read today, things do improve somewhat. Uh, Jonah does actually go and preach to Nineveh, uh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which at the time is the largest, most powerful empire in the world, and surprisingly, they repent. This, the, right, this massive city, they turn around. They repent. And then in chapter 4, it all goes pear-shaped again. And we'll see this next week. And I don't want to spoil it too much. But Jonah is, let's just say, he's not all that thrilled about the result of his ministry in chapter 3. And as a result, gets very grumpy and gets into an argument with God. And then comes to see his self-righteousness and his pride is very much still there despite all that's happened. So this chapter is really the only success story in the entire book. Chapter 1, terrible failure. Chapter 4, 
terrible failure. Chapter 2, stuck inside a fish, praying about it, and eventually getting vomited out. So chapter 3, in a way, is like the, the high point in the whole narrative. And other than this chapter, Jonah doesn't do very well. So it's, it's a chapter that's a, it's a bit more positive, but it's worth, worth framing it in the overall context of this book, which is not that great. And what we discover here in chapter 3 is a story of a pagan city turning to God. And specifically, we discover that it's a story about the power of the Word of God. That it's a story about the power of repentance. And that it's a story about the grace of God. It's a story about the power of the Word of God. It's about repentance. And it's about grace. So let's read Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he, he said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. This is the word of God. There's something very unusual about Jonah uh, as a prophet. Uh, how can I put it? Well, he doesn't exactly do a lot of prophesying. I mean, he speaks only one time, uh, one line of prophecy in chapter 3, verse 4, which amounts to five words in Hebrew and eight words in English. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. His sermon is surly and cold as if it's preached through gritted teeth. It, it reminds me of the way that the children often apologize to one another when their parents force them to do so against their will. And, and, and here's the thing. Jonah's reluctance doesn't stop the Lord from saving the entire city of Nineveh. In, in fact, the story of Jonah is in many ways a story. It's the story of the power of the word of God, right? Bear in mind, as I said, four chapters, three of them really stories of failure and not much happening. And, and this is the only chapter in which there is success. And it's success built on the power of the word of God because the odds are hugely stacked against Jonah. I mean, he walks into Nineveh, the largest and most prosperous city in the world, 
three times in the, the book, it is hailed as the great city or the exceedingly great city. It took three days to go through it. And by the standards of, the, of, of, of their day, it was vast. And his mission, Jonah's mission, is to turn the people from their wickedness through preaching. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, there was plenty of wickedness with these people. I mean, just to give you two more examples, if you were to go to the British Museum in London today and visit the Assyrian section, you'd see, among other things, the Lashish Relief, which is a series of of stone pieces. And I have uh, a picture that will come up for you, for those of you who are viewing online, bonus. Um, You'll just have to, if you're here in person, you just have to imagine it. And it's a a picture of someone, uh, an Assyrian king sitting on a throne. And the inscription um, uh, uh, to the relief reads, Sernacherib, that's the guy who's on the throne, Sernacherib, the mighty king, the king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lashish, I give permission for its slaughter. That's what he says. Lashish is, it was a, a, a Jewish fortress near Jerusalem that the Assyrians took. And then because God stepped in and destroyed the Assyrian army, they never actually took Jerusalem. You can read about that in Isaiah 36 and 37. But, but here Sennacherib is saying, here's the city. I'm sitting here uh, on this throne and I give permission for you just to slaughter it. I mean, that's the kind of people they were. And a second image that will uh, come up, uh, it, it maybe is a little bit more graphic because for those who are viewing it, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a stone relief, but in the bottom corner, there's just a bunch of pile, there's just a pile of heads, just a pile of people who've been beheaded and their heads are just grouped together, piled together as a little symbol of what happens to people who fight against the Assyrians. And, 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 and they were, as I shared previously, pretty gruesome, pretty extreme in their sort of skinning, flaying, burning alive, head-on-pole, carrying kind of people. They, they were just an appalling nation, a lot of wickedness. It, it was as depraved and as unjust as any civilization has ever been. And I think massive cities are intimidating places for visitors anyway. Right? Even if you're, even even if they're they're not like the Assyrians. I mean, have you ever gone to, you know, one of the great cities of the world like London or New York or Tokyo or Moscow or or wherever? You know, where there's just millions and millions upon millions of people, and it can just feel uh, a bit intimidating just being there. You're not trying to convert the city. You're not you're not worried that they're going to skin you alive if you do. You're, you're, just, you're, you're just there surrounded by thinking, this is, this is overwhelming. And if God sent me with a task to go and call this city to repentance, I'm not really sure what I would do. It's a pretty demanding task. So surely Jonah's hurried words of prophecy would be lost in the loud clamor of this great city. And then you start factoring in piles of heads and permission to slaughter everyone, skinning them alive if necessary, and you might not give Jonah much of a chance, I suspect. So, so Jonah goes into Nineveh armed with nothing except a message from God. He's armed with nothing except the word of God. 
And so in verse 4, he simply says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He is simply declaring something that God has said is true in the authority and power of the Spirit of God. And look at the response, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You think, Jonah, that is a terrible strategy. All you've done is walked into a city and announced a message from God. And yet somehow that message from God has such power that it affects dramatic social change in an entire city. All because of the power of the word. Not the power of a brilliant strategy and brilliant, I mean... This preaching is not even very well contextualized. I mean, there's probably a lot of things about it that, that you and I might change if we were trying to do it today. But listen, the Word of God is living and active. It's, it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it brings about transformation in this city. Proclaiming God's truth. Listen, proclaiming God's truth has much more power than people we typically realize it does. I love this comment, one of my favorite comments from Martin Luther. This is from 499 years ago. This is how he describes the Protestant Reformation, which swept through Europe and really changed the face of the world, even to this day. He wrote this, take myself as an example, he said. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, And wrote God's word. Otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept. Or drank Wittenberg beer. With my friends Philip and Amsdorf. The word so greatly weakened the papacy. That no prince or emperor. Ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Now that's an immensely encouraging comment. And I think it's, it's borne out in what we see in the book of Jonah. That somebody goes out into a city that is used to destroying all of their enemies and is a massive global city with no history of worshiping Israel's God. And they simply go with the message of God and it transforms the city. I did nothing. The word did everything. And that's all Jonah did. He didn't try and start a movement. He didn't try to to change or influence the, the government or even work miracles, as valuable as all those things are. He let the word do its work, and the people of Nineveh believed God. You know, I think it's relatively easy for us, as a church community, for us to affirm the authority of the word of God. I'm, I'm not sure there's really much debate about that around here. We, we affirm, we believe in the authority of God's word. But while we might not deny its authority, I think we do struggle a bit more to believe that it's powerful in and of itself. But the word of God has more power to change people than people typically think it does. It's living and active, and simply proclaiming it has enormous power. Now, now you still have to proclaim it. It doesn't have an enormous power if it's not spoken. But as the Word of God is, you know, read to children on a sofa in the evening or at bedtime, 
as the Word of God is spoken over people, prayed over people, communicated to people with whom we rub shoulders with day to day who are anxious and, and, and worried. The Word of God is communicated in normal life has much more power than people think it does. So Jonah chapter 3 is a story about the power of the Word of God. It's also a story about the power of repentance. It is a story about the power of repentance. The people of Nineveh take God at his word, and as a result, the city was swept with a spirit of repentance. Repentance meaning to turn around, to head the other way, and to do a U-turn. You're going in one way, and you do a U-turn, and you head back the other way. A turning of the heart away from selfishness or idolatry towards God. Repentance is what happens when our hearts change. And instead of heading one way towards ourselves, we turn the other way and put God first rather than ourselves first. And that act of repentance is enormously powerful. But in order to get there, it requires humility. A a, a humility that recognizes our desperate need and cries out for help. Because that's where repentance starts. And somehow, through the power of the Word of God, the people of Nineveh have come to realize that they need to humble themselves and repent before the Lord. And you know, sometimes we, we talk about a, you know, a, a great nation or a, a great sports team being, being humbled. You know, the great so-and-so was, was, was humble. You know, America was humbled in this battle with whatever country it was or, or whatever. And we often talk about that as a bad thing. As if a great nation being humble is a bad thing. It really isn't. Because nations being humbled, I I think of some of this as happening right now in our own nation with all that's gone on over the last year or so on so many different fronts. And I'm not saying that the nation has turned in repentance, but I think there has been a humbling We realize our limitations. We realize we're not quite as on it and as able to control things as we thought. And our view of ourselves gets a little smaller. And that can be a good thing because people begin to realize I am more desperate and more needy than I realized I was. No, I'm not, I'm not predicting that revival will therefore break out in America anytime soon, but I'm saying that there is a connection between people humbling themselves and repenting and calling out to God for rescue. And, and, when, and, and when we repent, our hearts come to realize, I can't do this. I need God. And, and it has the most remarkable power to change everything else about us. And it does in this situation in Jonah. It it, it changes everything. It changes society. Verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The, The whole of society is affected here. It changes leadership. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So from the greatest to the least, including the king. It changes laws. When people repent and turn to God, it changes the laws. Verses uh, 7 to 8, and the king issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not 
feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. It's a story about uh, a, a sort of, of, a, of, of national measures being taken to stop a disaster from striking. And, and, and it's kind of got uh, some strange resonances with the situation we're in right now. I mean, I think we'd all agree it's all right saying, hey, if you've got, if you, if you've got these symptoms, you need to self-isolate. I think the idea of Joe Biden having a press conference and, and saying, no one, not even the animals are allowed to eat anything until God hears our prayers. I'm not sure, you know, how everybody would respond to that. It's fascinating. You may know the story, you probably do know the story of the evacuation of, of Dunkirk between the 26th of May and the 4th of June. In 1940, it's a story of some 800 vessels from all over Britain rescuing more than a, over 300,000 Allied soldiers from the beaches in Dunkirk in northern France. And to this day, thanks to you know, Churchill's famous, we shall fight them on the beaches speech, it's, it's, it's referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk. And, you know, most people, when they use that language, you know, oh, yeah, it's the miracle of Dunkirk, as in, it's pretty, isn't it pretty amazing? But what the movies don't tend to say, movies like The Darkest Hour and Dunkirk, what, what, they, what they fail to draw attention to is something remarkable that happened nationally at the order of the king, which is that on the previous day, the day before the evacuation began, George VI, the king, called the National Day of Prayer. The, 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 the nation is called to prayer, and there were lines outside the cathedrals as people were calling out, much in the, in, like in the language here, calling out mightily to God for deliverance because there was a sense of, of humility. We can't do this. This is impossible. Our entire army is stuck on the beach, and the Germans are closing in on all sides. We've got no hope. And the nation was called to pray, and they prayed. And the next day, for the next six, seven days, this miraculous kind of evacuation takes place. Not just in terms of its scope, but also in the, with the, in the sense that, that the decisions made by the Germans were militarily and strategically bizarre, such that it was, that it was possible to get that many people out safely. And people look back at it from a, a military point of view and say, that was pretty miraculous. And of course, it was one of the turning points in the war. But it happened in response to prayer because the nation came to a place of humility and need, which then turned into what you might call, I suppose, a spirit of repentance, or at least of crying out to God to rescue us. So it changes everything when people repent. It changes people's behavior. Verse 8, that everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hand. It changes people's source of hope. Verse 9. Who knows? God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And as a result of all of that, God doesn't destroy the city. Repentance has remarkable power to change everything in a society or in a person. So it's a story here in chapter 3 about the power of the word of God. And it's a story about the power of repentance. Uh, but it's also, and perhaps more than either of those things, it's a story about the power of grace. 
the thing all remember about Jonah, I mean, the thing that any three-year-old child could tell you about Jonah is that he ran away from God and got swallowed by a great fish. But the reason that he did that is because he wanted to avoid preaching to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the victim-skinning evil empire that we've talked about. And I kind of assume um, internally that it was because Jonah was scared that he'd get skinned or killed himself if he went there. That, that's, that's what you'd assume. Jonah ran from, you know, ran from that. He ran away because Assyria was really villainous. And, and, and Jonah must have understandably been frightened. But when we reach chapter 4, as we will next week, we learn that that is not what Jonah was worried about at all. Jonah's reason for not preaching the gospel to Nineveh was not that he was frightened that he'd be skinned or stuck in a pole or turned into a head in a pile uh, on a relief in the British Museum. That's not his concern at all. The reason that Jonah is worried about preaching to the Assyrians is because he's worried that they will repent. He's worried that God's going to save him, them and exercise his grace towards them. And he's so aware, because he's so aware of how merciful and gracious God is, that he, that he doesn't want to go. Because he wants them all to face judgment. In other words, the reason why Jonah ran away is because he knew how gracious God was. It's like if Steph is concerned about me going into a bookstore and coming out with a bag full of books, she goes, I knew if you went in there, you'd do that. Do you really need any more books? You, should, you shouldn't have bought more books, but I kind of knew it that that was going to happen when you went in there because I know you and I know that's the kind of thing you would do. It just provides you too much of an opportunity for you to get carried away and splash your money around. And it's as if Jonah is saying that to God. I knew you would do this. If I went to Nineveh, I just knew that you'd find a way of saving them all. Because I know you and it's just going to be, just provide too good of an opportunity for you to splash your grace around all over the place. So I don't want to go and I'd rather be on the high seas on my way to Tarshish than I would see these people reach forgiveness. Because I've come to see how gracious you are and I don't like it. And here in chapter 3, that's exactly what does happen. Jonah's worst fears are realized. He goes to preach, and God is that gracious that even this horrible, this just vile, evil empire can get saved, or at least the city can be spared from this disaster as a result of the grace of God. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he'd do to them, and he didn't do it. This is just about the worst city in the world. As I say, you can see evidence of it today at the British Museum. But God is so gracious. He's so sensitized to, to, to human repentance. It's as if, you like, as if his eyes are just sort of roaming the world to see people whose hearts might be soft towards him. He's so sensitive to human repentance that when we turn from our sin, when we turn from sin, he turns from judgment. And actually, we can even see that in the play of words in English, can't we? When we repent, he relents. 
as in we turn back from sin and he turns back from judgment. Just like what the Apostle Paul came to realize and write having lived his life actually on both sides of the line. Right? Paul had been, if you like, both Jonah and the Ninevites. He realized he in many ways was like Jonah as a young man. Uh, he was a sort of uh, zealous Jewish nationalist who, who was eager for God to judge the evil wicked pagans and strike down the infidels. But then he encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ and he came to realize that he was actually Nineveh. A proud, violent enemy of God who was in dire need of God's mercy and grace to rescue him. And Paul in that moment, or in those three days that he's blinded on the Damascus Road and he, and he comes to faith through the laying on the hands of Ananias, he, he switches from thinking like a Jonah to thinking like a, a Ninevite. And he wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom? I'm the foremost. And that to me is like a Jonah moment. It's where Paul goes from declaring, if you like, his need to see other people judged to recognizing that he is in dire need of the exact grace of God that God has given to save him. This is a story in many ways about the radical, scandalous nature of that grace, which includes all the wrong people, and which infuriates proud, righteous people just like Jonah. That's why I've called this little series The Prodigal Prophet, because actually it's a story about what happens when the scandalous grace of God is shown to one son, and the other son, the elder son, often doesn't like it very much. And that's what Jonah becomes in this story and it's a warning to us lest we dial down the wonder of the grace of God as we're living in extraordinary times you don't need me to tell you that uh, I mean even the very fact that we're doing church this way is just kind of indicative of, of, of quite how much has changed over the past year and, and people in many ways have and continue to, as it were, batten down the hatches and get ready, if you like, for the Ninevite-like disaster that's just around the corner. And people have experienced the full range of human emotions over this past year, from anger to sorrow to anxiety. There's been so much uncertainty and continues to be uncertainty. Uh, uncertainty. Of, co of course, we all think we're doing great, but actually we can see some fairly unpleasant sides of ourselves that have emerged to the surface. And it's often because wickedness gets disguised or submerged under security and comfort. And when that security and comfort disappears for any reasons, people suddenly, well, a different side of people emerges. And so in a way, this has been a season in which the realization of human wickedness has been dialed up. 
But at the same time, this season also presents a profound opportunity to share the goodness of God with people. Because people are anxious and are worried and are full of anxiety and, and might even be a bit more aware of the sin in their own hearts and certainly they are of the world at large and aware of the dangers of sin and death. And as a result, people may be a little bit more open and aware of their need for God. And the truth that bridges that gap between the wickedness of human beings and the goodness of God is the doctrine of grace. See, like the people in Nineveh, you and I are more sinful than we could ever have feared. But like Jonah, we also need to know that we are more loved than we could ever dare hope. You and I are targets of the unmerited, transforming favor of Almighty God, which is what you need most and what this city around us needs most as well. The parents at the park, the people looking for dried pasta in aisle 13, the self-isolating uh, couple a few doors down from you, the colleagues at work who have lost their entire social circle because they're no longer working in the office. Every one of those people is called to repentance by a holy God. And every one of them is loved intensely by a Savior who went to the cross. So you and I may or may not be called to, to, to Jonah's specific vocation of walking around town announcing that everything will be overthrown in 40 days' time. And I suspect that's not a good idea. I'm not recommending it. Even so, God was able to use his fumbling message to save an entire city that knew nothing about him. I mean, even the mighty king of Assyria exchanges his royal finery for sackcloth and gravels in the dust for God to save him. That's the irresistible grace of God. And you and I are, are called to proclaim Jonah's message through the power of the word, looking for repentance in the hope of divine grace and to know Jonah's God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word to save, for the power of repentance to transform an entire life, and the power of the grace of God that means that we can receive the favor of God, undeserving as we are. Lord, thank you so much for the good news contained in a story like this, where so much of it seems to be a bit of a disaster. And Lord, we pray that in these puzzling and upsetting and strange times, Lord, that, that the people of this church, all of us listening, both here and present and those joining us online, that we would be able to find refuge in the grace of God, that we would turn from our sin repeatedly in repentance, that we would trust the power of your word to transform lives, and that we would grow in our understanding of and experience of your beautiful grace. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.